0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I was trying to think, how do I help people understand this? It would be like if you are an exceedingly beautiful person. You know the kind of person who, who even people of the same gender are like, dang, that's not even just a sexual kind of it's it's like you you're like a work of art. Your face is it's like um it should be in a museum. It's just so beautiful. Have you ever met someone like that? <clears throat> Any of you are tempted to say, just look over here on visual aid for I've met people who are just shockingly... I'm just like, wow. It must be so distracting to live with you because you just look at that face and you're like, wow, wow. Now, imagine that that was your experience all your life. Everywhere you walked in, people would immediately go, oh my gosh, oh, sorry. (laughs) You're just so beautiful. And that's the first thing they see about you. That's how you're defined. That's how you know your status, your standing. It's the most distinguishing feature about you. And then suddenly... An epidemic strikes all of humanity, and everyone but you goes blind. And suddenly, this thing which distinguished you from the rest of humanity, which led the room, which the moment you walked in, before you spoke a word, everyone said, that's the most beautiful person in the room. And suddenly, that thing is nullified, and you're left wondering, how do I know where I stand? How do I know how others see me now? On what basis do I determine my sense of worth, my sense of standing? How is my own image now to be determined when the reflection off the eyes of others is not available to me? When I can't measure in such a tangible way by the gasps and the sighs, and everyone just walks past me and doesn't see the thing which I thought was the most important thing about me. See, when Jesus spoke and he preached this sermon... The people who really believed themselves to be closest to God were shocked and offended because he had just changed all the rules. This thing which gave them frame and status was taken away. He says, if that's not how it works, how do we figure this out now? Where do I stand? And that's exactly, that's precisely the effect Jesus intended to have in starting the sermon with this list of Beatitudes. Before we can even continue, I have to establish one important question, because the rest of this list and the rest of this sermon will only be appealing and compelling if you have a desire for the approval and blessing of God. You know, imagine that you were greatly in love with someone, and someone you're not even interested say came up to you and said, listen, let me tell you how you could win my heart And get me to fall in love with you. you're like, "Uh, I don't really care. You don't even have to finish. Not interested. No, no, let me tell you how you can get my heart, my love, my affection. And if you didn't have a desire for that affection, would you really pay attention and take notes to whatever else they were spewing? You would say, save it. This thing you're holding out as a promise is not interesting to me. I don't have an appetite for that which you promise. I really believe that the only people who are deeply moved and permanently changed by the Sermon on the Mount are those for whom the blessing and approval of God is a thing they seek and yearn for. And so the question I want to ask you is, how important is God's joyful approval over you? How much does it matter to you that the God of the universe looks at you among all the seven billion other human beings and says, you belong to me, I approve of you. I'm so happy you are my child. How much does that motivate and drive the way that you live? How much does his approval frame when you feel happy and when you don't? And how much does the approval of God, when it's taken away, when there's disapproval, how much does that devastate you? Maybe another way to explore the question Is who else's approval, do you find yourself yearning more than God's? I know people who can be in good standing with God, but in poor standing with another human being, and the good standing with God brings no real comfort. Yeah, I know I'm good with God. I'm supposed to be. He's supposed to love everybody. But I don't know why my friends treat me this way. I don't know why my spouse can't be nicer to me. For us to make sense of the rest of the sermon, and in fact, for us to make sense of the Christian faith, the blessing and approval of God has to become something we yearn for, because it's the greatest promise held out to us. The first three Beatitudes, we can cluster together under the category, these are people who depend on God or whose hearts are marked by humility. And I just want to unpack very quickly these first three for you because if you misunderstand them, you're going to really go in a very wrong direction in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. I want to look at this thing, blessed are the poor in spirit, and I know I'm halfway done with my time, and I'm launching into my first point. When I say I'm going to go quickly, just trust me. Don't miss it looking at the clock, Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and really that's an emphatic theirs, that means for only them, is the kingdom of heaven. This is a very dividing statement, one that says there's two kinds of human beings, those who are blessed in this way and inherit the kingdom of heaven, and those that don't. It's that simple. I've told you before, I've always been tempted to write a book called There's Two Kinds of People in the World. Because everybody has a way of finishing that sentence. Yeah, there's two kinds of people in the world. Well, Jesus says there's two kinds of people in the world, those who are blessed by God and inherit the kingdom, and those who aren't and will live outside of that kingdom for eternity. Let me establish what poverty of spirit is not. It's not just somebody who's having a really bad time, who feels crushed and broken by the weight of suffering. It, in, it can include that, but it's not just that. It's also not somebody who just says, I just feel glad. a a total absence of vitality or spiritual power. It's more than those things. The person who is poor in spirit, because think about it this way, poverty is not a state of mind, it's a state of being. When you're poor, you don't just feel poor, you are poor. Do you understand? And Most of us have never been truly poor. But when you're truly poor, it's not just a humiliation or a bad feeling, it's the reality that, crud, I can't eat. I mean, I'm walking past the store, I see all this food in the window, and the only reason I can't eat it and you can is because you have some money in the bank and I don't. So I've got to stare at it. And that, that reality is what makes poverty so hard. Not the feeling, not the humiliation, but the reality that I am poor. I am poor. And what Jesus says is, The poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit, aren't just people who feel downtrodden, who feel low, who feel downcast, but understand at the most fundamental level, I am spiritually bankrupt. When I look in my soul for something that would commend me to God, that would entitle me to his favor, his blessing, that I can trade for his approval, I don't have anything. Now this is important because for most of us, I don't think that's how we look in the mirror. I don't think we look at him and say, God, I need your approval. I crave it. What can I trade to get that approval? And he said, I did this. I have done that. I have said this. I have believed that. And we we have this gathered pouch full of things which we believe commend us to God that say to him, I have a strong argument for why you should favor me. And what Jesus says, and this is revolutionary, is if that's how you think you're starting entirely the wrong place, you will never get the favor the blessing, the approval which God promises on that basis. The very first thing you put in that pouch disqualifies you from that blessing. Because the only person who gets the approval of God is the person who comes with empty hands, who says, I wish I had something to trade for your approval, but in fact, alas, I find in my spirit there's nothing that says I deserve your favor. Your acceptance of me. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm worthless. Not at all. It has nothing to do with your worth. It has everything to do with your worth. It says, I don't have something in me to uh, commend myself to you. And therefore, my only choice is to throw myself at your feet and say, I need your approval as a gift, an act of mercy. Not because I've done certain things that set me apart from my fellow man. The approval of God is less like the GPA a teacher gives you and more like the love a parent gives you, right? It's not based on your performance. It's based on a parent's choice to either love you or not love you. And think about how helpless a child is in that regard because not every parent loves their kids. Can we just admit that? I wouldn't be doing so much counseling if every parent loved their kids so well. And I'll probably be counseling some of your kids in about 10 years. You see, we're supposed to love our kids, but it's our choice. It's a gift if we love our kids well. If we genuinely love them, not just feed them, clothe them, you know, basically our human zookeepers. If that's all we do, don't call that love. That's just animal husbandry. But to truly love another human being is a choice and it's a gift and it's entirely mine to give or to withhold. And the spiritually poor understand that when they step into the presence of God and yearn to find that he smiles on them, that he approves of them, that that is starting entirely on the basis of him looking at my heart and find that I've offered nothing in trade but open hands and a desperate pleading heart. I need you to approve me and I have nothing to offer in trade. The person who is spiritually poor knows they are based on the posture and attitude with which they approach God in prayer and just in daily life. Do you find that you often approach God almost in the spirit that he has to earn your approval? I've met people like this who say, you know, God, the jury's still out whether you're a good God or not. I haven't decided that yet because there's some junk going on in my life that makes me think seriously doubt. I don't think you're paying attention. Or maybe you're just not really a great guy. Or maybe I'm just not your favorite. You like him more than you like me. I look at their Facebook feed and their life just looks better than mine. And I just don't know why you don't seem to really like me that much. And so sometimes we approach God as though he has to earn our approval and our favor. See, you know you're spiritually poor when the the posture of our approach to God is regularly, consistently one of humility, dependence, need, gratitude. Not when we approach him indignant, disgruntled, even bitter, lifting up a list of demands. Instead, the person who is spiritually poor falls on their knees and says, God, every time I approach you, I consider it a gift when you approve of me, when you will hear me out, when you will let me stand here in front of you. And so I want to ask you, is your relationship with God built around this spiritual poverty that says, I don't really have anything to offer to buy access to you. I'm just asking you, will you approve of me? Because you choose to do this. Because you are God who accepts those who don't try to buy entrance into your presence. Let me give you a second thing here. Are you still with me? All right. He he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. If spiritual poverty is the intellectual awareness that I have nothing to offer God but empty hands, then mourning is the emotional component of that. It's feeling it deep down. Feeling not just saddened or depressed by the brokenness of our world. Everybody feels that from time to time. Haven't you, even in recent months, just looked around the world? I can't believe this is the world I live in. It's like one day I tripped and I fell into an outhouse. And that's just my world. Do you ever feel that? Like, you're you're just depressed. That Why are people like that? I just saw last night that uh, on Netflix, a new show popped up, and it's called I no longer feel at home in the world. I have no idea if it's a good movie or not, but that title just grabbed me. Like, I got to know if that's, it just sounds the way I sometimes feel. Like, I just don't feel like I want to live here anymore. Right? You look around, you go, why do people act like that? You're waiting for a parking spot, clearly signal, and some guy just zooms in and takes you, and you're like, why am I even surprised? Why am I even surprised anymore at what people are capable of? But mourning is more than just being offended, disgusted, depressed. Because most of that kind of reaction is aimed at the fallenness of others. The kind of mourning which God blesses, he approves of, he draws near to, is not just disgruntlement with all the messed up people. It is that, but it is more. It is the person who looks at that and then also looks inside and grieves because they understand that everything messed up out there also lives in there. That I'm not complaining about a world others have broken, but I've broken that world quite a bit myself. And if you want to compare degrees, sure, you might make a good case in a court of law. That jerk broke it way more than me. God says the person who his heart draws near to is not sitting there trying to rank which one of us is more messed up than the other, but can admit in humility we're all messed up. That apart from the grace of God, that person is me. I I remember coming across one of the most powerful examples of this, and it wasn't from a Christian, it was from a Jew. In 1961, during the Nuremberg war crime trials of the Nazi leadership, and in particular the, the the war crimes trial of Adolf Eichmann, who sent many, many people to their deaths in concentration camps like Auschwitz. There was a man who took the witness stand. His name was Yahil Danur. I probably am not saying that right. But he was one of the lead witnesses against Adolf Eichmann. And when he stepped into the courtroom, that was the first time he had seen Eichmann in the flesh in the 20 years since he survived two years in Auschwitz. And you can see it, because this footage is available on YouTube. The, the Nuremberg trials were televised and recorded, and they're, they're out there. And as I watched it, you, you notice that Mr. DeNuer, throughout his testimony, keeps glancing over at Eichmann and then trying to answer the question of the judge. And as he talks, he starts to ramble. You could tell he's getting more and more distressed, more and more discombobulated. And finally, he stands up, and he just keels over and faints. The guards come in, they help him up, and they escort him out of the courtroom, and his testimony was done. It was a big mystery what happened there, and Mike Wallace, God bless him, he's one of those guys who just couldn't leave an open question like that hanging in the air. And so he invited this man in to the 60-Minute Studios in 1983, and he interviewed him, and he played that clip of him falling down, fainting, and he asked, Mr. Dinner, I need to know, why did you faint that day? It was a weird thing. What made you? Was it fear? Was it horrid memories? Was it hatred? Chuck Colson happened to be watching that 60 Minutes interview live, and in his book, Who Speaks for God, he records this interview and how Mr. Dinor responded to Mike Wallace's question. Listen to what he writes. That's Eichmann. And this is him fainting. Mr. Dinur. He says, what is it that made you faint? And look at this response. It blows me away. Was he overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories? No, it was none of these. Rather, as Nure explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid About myself, he said. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. I'm gonna admit to you, when I first read that, something deep in me recoiled. Don't say that, that's going too far. It's absurd for a Jewish Auschwitz survivor. To say, at any level, me and Eichmann were the same. Certainly it could not mean we've done the same things. But the reason he fainted is because he had turned Eichmann, and if you see pictures of Eichmann in his height as a Nazi officer, he looked exactly like, like central casting for the scary Nazi officer who orders people callously to their deaths without a second thought. He looked like that guy. I can see why you would think him fearsome, godlike, beyond human. But looking at this guy who could have been your bookkeeper, the local grocer, and he kept staring. He goes, where is the monster, this godlike, larger-than-life being? And he realized, I'm looking at another human being, one that did incredibly unspeakable things, but I can't make him something categorically different than me, another species. Yes, there is such a thing as evil. Don't take this the wrong way. But what Mr. Dinor was saying is very close to what Jesus is describing in this biblical morning. It's to understand that if I acknowledge my spiritual bankruptcy that there is nothing in me that sets me apart from the rest of humanity and commends me to God and says, I have this to trade for your approval. If there's nothing in me, then it's to recognize that when I confront true evil and fallenness and wickedness, I don't look at that person and say, you are a crazy beast, an animal I'll never be. You've done terrible things. But here's the truth. Very few human beings have ever known the full extent of their depravity if they are given absolute power over other human beings. Think about how much power our parents had over us growing up and how often they were negligent in it, callous and sensitive to how much their little things, the the little whims, their little statements, dug at us, tore into our hearts, ripped us apart. We have small power and we so often use it to destroy how do you know what kind of person you would be if you lived in a society that commended horrific behavior, that, uh, that praised it, that rewarded it, and gave you absolute power without accountability? How do you know what you are capable of? You can make all the lofty claims in the world, but the Stanford prison experiments and things like it, history itself tells us, even those once formerly oppressed, downtrodden, Stepped on when they get the same power as the oppressor, become worse or at least no better. This was a story I saw in Ghana when I first visited in 2001. The first African nation to receive independence, to win independence from cl- colonialists. And when I talked to Ghanaians who are old enough to remember, they said, We were so optimistic, so hopeful that we had finally ousted the colonial white man from our midst, and a black man led us only to discover that he was worse than the whites who left. When he got absolute power, it destroyed him and he destroyed us. I'm not making a racial statement here. I'm saying this is a human statement. We look down our noses at the historical figures who committed atrocities, but none of us really knows for sure what that level of absolute power would bring out In us. And the person who is poor in spirit and who mourns as Jesus would have us mourn can at least recognize I should not look down my nose at such a person. I should fall to the ground in humility and look up at God and say, How is it you can tolerate any of us? Let society break down. Let it come down to just brutal chaos where if I don't fight for it, my child doesn't eat. And let me ask you what you think you're capable of if I come to your house to try to take the food you reserved for your family. Do you think you could kill me? Do you think if your child's survival was on the line, you could not become a monster? See, most of us have never been given the opportunity to see the full depth of our depravity, but Jesus says the person who's God's heart drawn to is the person who looks in the mirror and says, I understand that though I haven't experienced it, I have no illusions about who I am. We are a fallen people altogether. And altogether, we are at the mercy of God. And if he approves of us, it is a gift beyond imagining. I imagine cockroaches all day long in the dark come out and parade about. My antennas are much nicer than yours. You live under the fridge? That's gross. That's a terrible side of town. We live under the cabinets where the food is. But when the lights come on, only a stupid roach continues the argument while the person comes and says, you're all still roaches. It's not to say that God looks at us as beneath contempt or as without value. But that's how absurd it is to stand before a holy God and say, but I'm not like them. And I think God's response is, how do you know? The mother that nursed Eichmann did not think her baby would do this one day. I imagine as a child, he did a few nice things for people. I imagine later on, just before the moment of death, he may have had a moment of clarity and was horrified. Maybe not. But the heart that God draws near to is one that says, I will not look down my nose at the depravity around me, but I will let that remind me of my own need for God. And I will mourn not just for what they've done, but what we have all done to the world which God has made. And I know that we mourn. We can know that we mourn properly when looking at the depravity and the fallenness of others We're reminded what a gift God gave when he said, I forgive you. The person who mourns properly is gripped by this undying gratitude for the gospel. We don't say, yeah, 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 you saved me. That's old news. What have you done for me lately? The the heart that mourns this way never says that. It says, every time I look around at how bad the world is, I'm reminded what a great thing you freed me from. When you forgave me, I'm reminded of the woman in Luke 7 who scandalized a Pharisee named Simon who was hosting a dinner party for Jesus. And this woman who had a shady past, it very clearly gives inference, she's probably a woman with very promiscuous, loose morals. And she interrupts this dinner party that's not even hers And she makes a spectacle of herself falling on Jesus' feet, crying, kissing his feet, drying them with her her hair. And this is all very scandalous. And the guests and Simon all say, what is this? If you you really were a religious leader, you would know what kind of whore is touching your feet. You would kick her off of you. What kind of rabbi tolerates this? And Jesus points to her, and says to Simon and to all his followers, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. We know that we have mourned rightly before God when the brokenness of the world around us and the sins even of others Drives us to a fresh gratitude that God would forgive us. That we're always aware he has done something amazing through the gospel for us. Let me give you one last thing. He says, blessed are the meek. This is what the men usually check out. (laughs) Meek, whatever. Nudge your wife, listen up. You could use a little more meek. Cut it out. (laughs) This is how a person receives the joyful and loving approval of God. There's this cumulative progression to the Beatitudes that a person who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy and mourns not only over the sinfulness of others but over their own darkness is then capable of interacting with other people very differently than they used to. The person who is meek, is not a pushover, is not indecisive, insecure, lame, milquetoast, pantywaist. Meekness is not just weakness. It is humility and self-awareness that bleeds over into the way I relate to other people. It is a controlled strength a restraint because every time I'm tempted to retaliate, to condemn, to indict another person, I am reminded who they are and who I am and that we're not so different in the end apart from God's grace. The person who is not meek is very quick to justify themselves, to try to point out the fault in others, to, get, to, to make things right, to say, you know what, hold on, hold on. You did wrong, you need to admit it. And yes, there is a place for that. But for the person who is not meek, that's their only agenda. I don't care what else happens, you need to pay for what you've done. I need to put your nose in this a little bit. It's the way I am tempted to treat my dog when she poops in my carpet. Nobody who has a dog likes to find a pile on their floor. Man, it's all I can do not to take that dog's nose and go, this is you, don't you ever do this again like that stupid beast is going to learn a thing. Stupid animal. I'll I'll stick his nose in it. He's just going to be like, "Ah, it smells real bad. (laughs) What? I had to go. See, we have this idea that when we're confronted with the wrong in others, the most important thing is to get in the face and let them know you're wrong. But the meek, though that may become necessary, understand that before I become God's agent of justice, I need to look in the mirror and remember who I am as I do this work. You'll know whether you're meek according to kingdom meekness by the way you respond to the faults of others. It's interesting that often when I prepare a sermon, God prepares me by messing with my life so that my own life becomes a living illustration of everything I want to say on Sunday. And yesterday was one of those twilight zone days where where Jeannie and I were looking at you like, are we getting pumped? It's like we're on a reality show. Yesterday, our day was frequently messed up and jacked around by the failings of others. By a coach who doesn't know how to let people know, oh, I cancel practice. Would have been nice if you told us before we drove 40 minutes and rearranged all our evening plans to find out when our daughter texts us, it's, it's canceled. There's no one. I'm supposed to go home. You know, it's frustrating. And then we ordered pizza for Elijah and his birthday guests because we were gone for dinner. And we ordered two pizzas, and the girl taking the order clearly didn't know what she was doing and ended up calling us back 30 minutes later and be like, oh, wait, uh, so like, you ordered pizza, right? What did you order again? We're like, what? Give her the order again, and when we come home, the boys have eaten everything in the pantry. And we're like, weren't three pizzas enough? And like, there was only two, and they were small. I saw the vein pop out in Jeannie's neck. Like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, they, they gave us two, and they weren't even the toppings we asked for. I, I hugged Jeannie and just said, shh, shh. On the way home from that dinner outing, I knew I had a couple hours left of work. I stopped at McDonald's and I ordered a coffee, and the person goes, Oh, we don't have any brewed. Could you just pull up to bay number one and wait so we could make it fresh? And like a dummy, I'm just sitting there. 10 minutes goes by. I finally go, Wait, it cannot take 10 minutes to brew coffee. So I hit in reverse. I go back to the window. I look in, and the guy's just doing stuff. He's just, I'm like, Hey, Is my coffee ready yet? And he goes, oh, my God. And I'm like, nuh-uh. No. Lord, it's too much. here's what I realized is in all three of those situations, my first thought was, can't anybody do their job anymore? What is wrong with everybody? I'm sick of incompetence. I wanted to make sure their managers knew, don't let this person stay here much longer if you like customers. Keep them hired only if you hate money. I mean, there's something in my heart, right, that just wants to be indignant and outraged and was as if God was saying, if this is how you respond to mere annoyance, how could you possibly represent a holy God in the face of real evil? How could you possibly stand for me, show the world what I'm like if real evil rises up? And this is what you have in you, that you lose all side of humility and grace and forgiveness just because someone forgot your coffee. And in that moment, your only thought was retaliation and condemnation. If you cannot work towards restoration, redemption, peace, how can you claim you have the meekness which draws the approval of God? Let me end this way. The worst way to apply the Beatitudes will be to say, okay, this is the kind of person God blesses. Let me start trying to be all those things. That's not the intent of Jesus in preaching it. But what he said was, if you really take a sober-minded, spirit-led look at who you are and who I am and invite me to do a work in your heart, I will change your heart. I will change your heart so that you have no illusions about who you are and how all this works. Don't try to act this way to get my blessing. Just throw yourself at my feet and say, God, I need to know I'm bankrupt in my heart. I need to know I can't give you this. Like, hey, Lord, at least I'm one of the good guys. At least I try. I won't even do that. God, help me not to hide behind that false illusion. Teach me not just to be saddened by the flaws of others, but to be deeply grieved at my own sinfulness and deeply thankful for forgiveness. And having done those things with you, when I'm, in the, when I'm confronted with the failings of other people, make me meek, not ready to justify myself, but ready to work for justice, ready to heal and repair and redeem others and not just my own heart my own dignity. God, give me that kind of spirit because what I want more than anything in the world is your joyful, loving approval. I want your blessing more than I want anything else. If we can say that, I think God will respond strongly in our direction. I want to invite you to just bow your heads. As the band comes back up, I want to invite you into prayer. I think one of the most important questions we can pray through this morning, and we're just going to take a couple minutes, so if you would really just bear down and, and engage with God right now. The word has gone out, but I think what, what, what happens now is actually the most important part of the sermon. Because now that I'm done talking, I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you very personally. What is it that drives you? What do you yearn for most? Whose approval fuels your life? I believe what Jesus was saying is that God delights in approving of and blessing his children. But not everyone who approaches receives that blessing. Do you want to be blessed by God more than you want anything else? If the answer is honestly no, that's where we start. Say, God, I don't know why I'm craving other things more. Bring me to a place where I want your blessing more than I want other blessings. So let's just begin there, and I'll I'll stop talking. I will invite the Lord to now speak to us as we listen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.